Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Episode 108, Mikhail Sergeyevich Muddles Through Things. Now, last time, we recounted Mikhail Gorbachev's rise to the top of the leadership of the Soviet Union in his own words, through his memoirs. Now, it's time to look at his years at the top through others' eyes. Now, my three main sources but not my only ones, are A History of Modern Russia by Robert Service, A Failed Empire, The Soviet Union and the Cold War from Stalin to Gorbachev by Vladislav Zubok, and The Dream That Failed by Walter Lacour. They give a real good mix of Soviet perspective and a more Western view. Gorbachev is a rather complex person, if you think about it from looking from the West, but when you look at the East and the uh, perspective of the Russians and the Soviet Union as a whole, there's a lot less to the man that I found out than I had really initially anticipated. I had thought, you know, real positive outlook on the guy. I was going to really be very uh, up on him. But I'd like to uh, thank my listener, Vadim, who... Uh, Maybe look at it a little differently than reading more about Gorbachev. I found that there was a lot less to the man that we all thought of in the West. So let's move forward here. The nation that Gorbachev inherited was in an internal state of chaos. In Poland, for instance, starting in August of 1980, labor strikes were being held in the city of Gdansk, where we first learn about a movement called Solidarity. We also hear of a man the world would learn much about, Lech Walesa. And the Kremlin, their paranoid view of the world, made them sure that there was some sort of underground agitation fueling the strikes. It couldn't be their actions and the fury of the people, could it? Well, by 1981, the KGB was concerned that the strikes were spreading into the Baltic countries, as well as even penetrating the Soviet Union and Belarus. Efforts were made to tighten the borders around Poland, but military actions were not something Brezhnev was willing to use. One would think that Yuri Andropov, the head of the KGB, would have pressed for military intervention, but that would be wrong. As he put it, quote, the quota of interventions abroad has been exhausted. After Hungary, Czechoslovakia, and Afghanistan, the Soviets could ill afford another war. The Kremlin decided to, to see if they could rally the Polish communists, but what they found was an aging and tired group, much like themselves. The old-timers were just that, old-timers. The younger members of the Communist Party wanted change and reform. They were tired of the corruption of the apparatchiks of the past. Economically, the Soviet Union was suffering from a lack of hard currency. It was vastly outspending its income, and needed to sell resources such as oil and gas on the open capitalist markets. This meant that they would have to lessen the exports and subsidies to their Warsaw Pact allies. More pressure on those governments to prop up a system that was rotten at the core. Now, the oil embargo of the 1970s helped prop up the banking system and economy of the USSR, but American President Reagan began to put pressure to lower prices. He found willing allies with the Arab princes as they were staunchly anti-communist, fearing potential unrest in their countries. 
Reagan also tried to put pressure on his Western European allies to block the building of an oil pipeline from the Soviet Union to Europe. While unsuccessful, his pressure caused the project to be delayed for a number of years, putting a further squeeze on the Soviet economy. When Gorbachev reached the top of the heap, he was faced with all those problems and more. When 1985 came and he was named as the new leader, many, especially in the West, saw a number of similarities between him and Khrushchev. While they had similar peasant backgrounds, believed deeply in reform, had outgoing personalities, and were genuinely optimistic that they could change their country, the differences far outweigh the similarities. Whereas Khrushchev was brash and impatient, Gorbachev was slow and wanted to gain a consensus. Khrushchev, as Zubok puts it, attacked a problem like a tank attacking enemy defenses. By contrast, Gorbachev procrastinated and wove cobwebs of bureaucratic politics. Khrushchev repeatedly put his life and career at risk during Stalin's purges, the war, and the plot against Beria. Gorbachev never had a close brush with death and received the supreme power almost on a silver platter. In his memoirs, we remember him talking about all his hard work and the trauma of seeing all the dead soldiers when he was a child, but in reality, he had it far better than the average citizen, especially after he joined the Komsomol, and even better when he joined the Communist Party. He bemoans his tough living conditions, except that it was way better than the common man. Gorbachev speaks about his hard work in the Central Committee, but the work was pure bureaucratic policy shuffling. He had it easy. The job ahead, though, was certainly not easy, and he knew that he needed to make changes. But Gorbachev, despite what you've been told about him, acted timidly and exceedingly cautiously. But move ahead he did. In April and May of 1985, he began to use the word that the citizens of the Soviet Union wanted to hear, perestroika. It means restructuring, but was only used to mean an economic reform, not societal. Now was not the time, because frankly, there was no plan. The first two years of Gorbachev's regime was basically a continuation of Andropov's anti-corruption policy. Hundreds of party leaders and most of Brezhnev's cronies and bureaucrats were removed. Gorbachev believed that this would begin to stimulate the economy, but this was no reform at all. Instead, it was just a reshuffling of people. The positions in the centralized planned economy remained the same. Gorbachev was unwilling to realize then that it was the system that was the problem, not the people. The people in the system were only a reflection of it. Stalin, and to a lesser extent Lenin, had created a way of life that was unmoving, unimaginative, and unable to get out of its own way. The corruption was necessary for people to survive, as their wages were totally inadequate. The plans that Gorbachev and his team instituted were the same old haggard five-year plan type of ideas that marked the previous 60 years. On top of that, he tried an old Khrushchev trick of making a goal to catch up to the U.S. in industrial output in a ridiculously short period of time.
He felt that all of these great wonders could be done because of efficiency in the removal of corrupt elements of society. And another absolutely crazy plan was to go vigorously after the Russian drinking problem. It was another idea that initially came from the other teetotaler, Yuri Andropov. Neither he nor Gorbachev was found in the vodka, so they tried to blame that for many of the woes of their people. Little did they understand that drinking alcohol was a tradition, but it also is what made life bearable, that it was an integral part of Russian culture dating back from before the time of Vladimir the Great. Remember from way back in episode number two that Vladimir rejected Islam as a religion partly because of its disdain for alcohol. He knew his people wouldn't accept that. Gorbachev did not know the history of his people well enough. Unfortunately, he did not have access to this podcast during his reign. Pity. He might have learned a thing or two. Another problem with this harebrained idea was that tax revenue from vodka sales was enormous. And as you will find out later, his plan would be disastrous. All the time that he was treading water in the domestic arena, he was beginning to shine in the international spotlight. In the West, this is what he is best known for. And if you read his memoirs, Gorbachev fondly recounts those successes far more than he regales his domestic policies. While from outward appearances, the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union was going on hard and fast. But in reality, things were beginning to loosen up under Chernenko. Andrei Gromyko had started opening up talks with the Secretary of State, George Shultz, about arms talks between the two nations in January of 1985. Gorbachev knew that he had to rein in the military spending as it was bankrupting the country. In order to do that, though, he had to negotiate with the United States and end the Cold War. Gorbachev's next order of business was to divide the responsibilities for foreign and domestic policies between those in the government he trusted and not the old hacks left over from the previous administrations. He left the domestic issues to Igor Ligachev and Nikolai Ryazkov, while he took on the foreign issues along with Edward Shevardnadze. Gorbachev needed to open the minds of his colleagues by using, and I hope I get this pronunciation right, Novaya Mishlenye, or New Thinking. The thought was that maybe, just maybe, they needed to reassess the ideological basis of the Soviet Union. He put together a team to discuss the issues of the day and how to rectify the situation. No one was more important to this New Thinking than his wife, Riza. Others in the group included Alexander Yakolev, Valery Bolden, Evgeny, Evgeny Primakov, and Edward Shevardnadze. Yakovlev was the most liberal and reformed-minded of the group, as he had spent quite some time abroad as the ambassador to uh, Canada. He proposed that Marxism-Leninism's ideal of class-divided world was wrong, and that, quote, the fact that we live in an interdependent, contradictory, but ultimately integral world. That type of radical thought was finally being bandied about, but Gorbachev was not quite ready for that yet. 
What he needed now was ideas on how to break the stalemate with the U.S. and the isolation that the Soviet Union felt. Grigory Arbatov listed what he thought would help change the international mood. First off, get out of Afghanistan and reduce troop concentrations in Europe and the border with China. Anatoly Chernev took it one step further and proposed that a policy of free immigration take place along with the release of political prisoners. These changes were intended to break up the isolationist paranoia that had gripped the country under Stalin and later Brezhnev. Gorbachev had to move cautiously as he had an adversary on the other side of the world that was making it real hard on him to be seen as too liberal of a reformer, and that was American President Ronald Reagan. Reagan was all for a rapprochement with the Soviets, but his style was that of a saber-rattling warmonger in the eyes of the Soviet hierarchy. Reagan was all for the destruction of the Soviet version of communism and its influence in the world. The U.S. Pre president demanded that the Soviets leave Afghanistan, Angola, and Ethiopia, but wouldn't even talk of his own withdrawal from Central America. Because of this, Gorbachev hesitated in removing troops from these countries. He would remove them in stages, but not because of pressure from the U.S. Gorbachev moved hard on the issue of disarmament, especially when it came to nuclear arms, which he abhorred. He felt that nuclear war and the consequences of it were wholly unacceptable. By the end of 1985, he asked his think tanks to come up with ideas to find a way to make proposals to the U.S. that would bring an end to nuclear proliferation. The radical change that was proposed and accepted was to change the thinking of a party from a, quote, bipolar ideological vision of the world with a idea of the world's integrity and interdependence. Yet another break from Stalin, Khrushchev, and Brezhnev's policies. As Gorbachev remembers, it had a huge impact on our own policy and the policy of the rest of the world. The draft that came down stated that, quote, the policy of total military confrontation had no future. The arms race, as well as a nuclear war, cannot be won. The task of building security appears as a political task, and it can be resolved only by political means. Robert Service, in his book, A History of Modern Russia, and reported by Vladislav Zubok in his book, A Failed Empire, concluded, quote, The report removed the ideological tenet that peaceful coexistence is another form of class struggle, and that nuclear war, if it occurs, would lead to socialism's triumph. Stalin's doctrine of two camps, an integral part of the Soviet revolutionary imperial paradigm since 1947, was no more. Gorbachev made it known that a new policy was in place, yet the Americans were skeptical and viewed it as a propaganda ploy, and not a serious proposal. Reagan ordered an escalation in the arming of Afghan rebels, including a man named Osama bin Laden and his group Al-Qaeda. Gorbachev was furious and he wanted to, quote, give the U.S. a substantial kick in the shin.
Still, he believed that a course of rapprochement with the Americans was the way to peace. The biggest thorn in the side of Gorbachev was the U.S. Strategic Defensive Initiative, SDI, or Star Wars, as it was known in the media. And it was a major concern for him and his advisors. By March of 1986, Gorbachev thought that, quote, maybe we should just stop being afraid of the SDI. The Reagan administration indeed expects that the USSR is afraid of SDI in the moral, economic, political, and military sense. That is why they are putting pressure on us, to exhaust us. But for us, this is a problem not of fear, but of responsibility, because the consequences would be unpredictable. Then, two events were to occur that would shake the Soviet Union to its core. The first one happened on April 26, 1986, at 1.30 a.m., when an explosion occurred at the Chernobyl nuclear reactor. The administration's first reaction was to downplay the disaster in the Ukraine, but quickly they realized that they had a real serious problem on their hands. Word got out in waves to a panicked population and the forced evacuation of over 100,000 people in the surrounding area days after the explosion. The health effects of the nuclear meltdown at Chernobyl are still being felt today. As some of my listeners know, my real profession is in the field of health, in a particular environmental health. And I can tell you I've dealt with a number of people here in the States who lived in the general area of Chernobyl and have seen the incredible effects on their health decades later. It is estimated that 8,000 men and women perished because of the meltdown, and over 400,000 people had their health disrupted, with an upper estimate of tens of millions worldwide. The emotional and political fallout was enormous. The concept of winning a nuclear war so hammered into the psyche of the Stalin supporters and following regimes was shattered. The head of the general staff, Marshal Sergei Akmomoryev, remembered that after Chernobyl, quote, a nuclear danger for our people ceased to be an abstraction. It became a palpable reality. Gorbachev realized the impact of Chernobyl. As he told his Politburo comrades, we learned what nuclear war can be. It was this nuclear disaster that forced the communist leaders to introduce the concept of glasnost, or openness, to its policy making. As Gorbachev said, our work is now transparent to the whole people, to the whole world. There are no interests that can force us to hide the truth. The immediate effect on foreign policy came in Stockholm, where arms talks had been going on for years with no resolution in sight. The reason had been the Americans' insistence on on-site NATO inspections of Soviet military installations and the total rejection of the idea by the Soviets. This changed post-Chernobyl. Much to the horror of the Soviet military establishment, Akromoyev was sent to Stockholm to tell the negotiators that the USSR would allow inspections. Within a few weeks, a treaty to the effect was signed. 
Even with this change, Reagan stood his ground and continued his saber-rattling. Gorbachev appealed to the more left-thinking allies of the U.S., like Mitterrand of France, Pierre Trudeau of Canada, and Spanish Prime Minister Philippe González to try and persuade Reagan that Gorbachev was sincere. But of all the people to be the go-between, it was the arch-conservative Prime Minister of Great Britain, Margaret Thatcher, who did so. Gorbachev believed that complete nuclear disarmament was the right way to go. Thatcher, for her part, rejected that as a dangerous romantic utopia. But Gorbachev kept pushing. As Chernyev said, quote, If Gorbachev had not been so pushy and so implacable in his desire to prove to all that nuclear weapons were an absolute evil and one cannot build world politics on it, then the process of detente would never have begun at all. Thatcher began the process to stimulate discussion between the two superpowers. Now, another unlikely middleman was former U.S. President Richard Nixon. Highly respected for his role of pushing detente in the 60s and early 70s, he told Gorbachev in July of 1986, quote, You're right. There are people in the Reagan administration that do not want agreements with the Soviet Union. It seems to them that if they can isolate the Soviet Union diplomatically, apply economic pressure on it, achieve military superiority, then the Soviet order would collapse. Of course, this is not going to happen. During many years, Reagan, as you know, was considered a part of the grouping that shared these views. However, today he is not one of them. I learned from conversations with him that the meeting with you had a slow but undeniable impact on the evolution of his thoughts. While things began to look up internationally, domestically things were going to hell in a handbasket real fast. Oil prices were dropping, causing a monetary crisis. Chernobyl cleanup costs were going over 3 billion rubles. To top it off, remember the anti-alcohol campaign I mentioned before? Well, that was a financial disaster as well, as they no longer had the influx of alcohol taxes coming in. That amount came to a staggering loss of 15 billion rubles per year. Gorbachev knew that something had to change, but he had no idea what that change was, as he was unwilling, or rather likely, unable to drop the Marxist-Leninist socialism that was really the root of the problem. Then, as to unravel all the good feelings developing in the U.S.-Soviet relations, the KGB began to arrest and or frame U.S. spies and alleged spies, which caused Washington to retaliate and arrest Soviet moles in the U.S. During this period of deteriorating relations between the two superpowers, Gorbachev sent a letter to Reagan to see if they could meet at a neutral site to discuss arms reduction. The place they would meet was Reykjavik, Iceland. The meeting would have monumental consequences. The meeting at first was congenial, with great progress coming about. The two leaders made a great headway in agreeing on missile and nuclear disarmament, with Gorbachev making huge concessions. 
The Soviet leader then made a demand that Reagan could not agree to, or would not. That is the dismantling of the Strategic Defense Initiative. The summit collapsed and nothing was accomplished. If only Gorbachev had known that Star Wars was purely a theoretical idea, it was many years, if not decades, away from being a reality, if ever. Had this happened 20 years earlier, Gorbachev would have lost his power base, just as Khrushchev had post-Cuban Missile Crisis. Another reason is that while the summit failed, both sides realized that the reduction in nuclear missile stockpiles was in the best interest of the entire world. Within the Soviet hierarchy, there was dissension, especially between Gorbachev and two of his now former allies, Ligachev and Ryazkov. Joining those two were Gromyko and KGB head Viktor Cherberkov. The Politburo was in turmoil, and this was never more apparent than after a report given by Akromayev, which claimed that the Soviet Union could not win a war with the U.S., and that they should stop trying to match their enemies militarily. Quiet screams of treason resounded in the hall. Gorbachev, as the head of the military, accepted the doctrine. It was the beginning of the end of his cordial relationship with the Soviet military establishment. Now you would think with all the dissent within the government that Gorbachev would be on shaky grounds. But remember, there was a neutered leadership behind him, remnants of Brezhnev's stagnant years and the aftermath of Stalin's terrors. There were no men of conviction that dared to stand up to Gorbachev. Join me next time as we continue the story of the deterioration and eventual dissolution of the once mighty Soviet Union. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Don't forget to go to the new website at www.RussianRulersHistory to read more about the history of Russia through the events of the day. We've added some interesting uh, information on the Decemberist Revolt of 1825, on General Anton Denikin of the White Army, of things like Sakharov's release by Gorbachev, uh, and just so much more, the burning of the Winter Palace, and more about the palace and its evolution over time. Also, don't forget to join us on Facebook, where you can ask a question, make a comment, leave a suggestion. But, as always, Das Vidanya. Ispasiba Bolshoya.